A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach Twomley, and you are listening to episode 11 of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. So, if you haven't listened to the other 10 episodes, go ahead and do that now, or you won't really know what's going on. If this is your first time listening to us, then thanks very much for stopping by, and I hope you'll listen to our large back catalogue and enjoy what we have to offer here. And I hope you'll also be fit and join the History Friends community that When Diplomacy Fails has spawned. Thanks for listening. And thanks to all my other listeners who have been here since 2012, 2013, 2014, or 15. It's been a long, fun ride, and this is the latest installment of that ride. So, When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which you probably know by now. What you might not know is that the podcast of the month for the Agora Podcast Network is by a man called Benjamin Jacobs. And his podcast is called Wittenberg to Westphalia, which might sound quite topical for us, since we know all about Westphalia, don't we? Because we all listened to the Thirty Years' War, didn't we? Like good history friends should. Well, you see, normally I would kind of invent my own blurb or description of the podcast and put my own slant on it. But Benjamin Jacobs is just so mean that he forced me, against my will, to read this blurb that he provided for me. In fact, for all of us to read. It just goes to show that the dictatorship of Benjamin Jacobs has only just begun. So the following is exactly, word for word, what he told me to say. The early modern period saw seismic shifts in European society. In a very short period, everything from warfare to art changed radically. On Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation... Benjamin Jacobs uses the narrative of the Protestant Reformation and a large dose of humour to examine the stories and events of this critical period. So, that's Benjamin Jacobs and his podcast, Wittenberg to Westphalia. I would like to think that his podcast would be a good accompaniment to mine. In fact, if you haven't listened to the 30 Years' War special that I've done, maybe you could listen to his back catalogue first and see how Europe got to the mess that it got to in 1618. It'll be a good place to start, but either way, I hope you guys will check out Wittenberg to Westphalia. Okay, so, I think we can begin this episode. A big shout-out to John Kane for his generous donation, as well as to Joseph Montague for his generous donation. And I'd like to encourage you guys to continue donating, because it makes me very, very happy. Continuing with the realm of ways to support When Diplomacy Fails podcast monetarily... In the next week or so, I should be dropping a pretty exciting announcement related to that. Just a hint, it's something I've been working on for a very, very long time, and I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. 
So, with that suspenseful announcement, sort of, kind of, out there, I think we can finally begin the show. Thanks, guys, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the last two loaded episodes, we examined the first full year of the conflict that was the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which by the beginning of 1666 had left all sides exhausted, both militarily and diplomatically. The war, contrary to British expectations, had not been the walkover they had expected, and with social problems, financial depressions and natural disasters aplenty, it seemed as though God himself was against the war. On the other hand, the war had not been an easy ride for the Dutch either, who had yet to gain a decisive victory, and whose home government, led by Johan de Witt, was frequently undermined by the pro-peace and pro-British Orangist party, who wished to see the teenage William of Orange back in his privileged position, and an end to rule by the regents, whom Johan de Witt so effectively represented. The Dutch, despite the difficulties, had more reasons to be positive by the beginning of 1666, though. We saw last time how the diplomatic nets so hopefully cast out by London eventually returned empty, as both Charles II's cousin Louis XIV of France, Denmark, and in time Brandenburg, would all declare for the Dutch in some form, and would leave Britain in isolation in the process. Thus the need was great among Charles's court, to effect a great victory that would silence the critics, soothe the divisions and bring the Dutch at last to heel. The problem with this, of course, was that the Dutch were looking for the exact same results, except they now had the friends, not to mention the money and the experience, to try and bring it about. Let's see what happened next. I will now take you to early 1666. Good order makes us look assured, and it seems enough to look brave, because most often our enemies do not wait for us to approach near enough for us to have to show if we are in fact brave. Louis Fourteenth of France, commenting on the importance of forbearance and bravery during battle, in his Memoirs of Louis Fourteenth for the Instruction of the Dauphin. The continuation of not just Johann de Witt's regent regime, but also the very survival of his country as an independent state, depended much on what would develop over the next campaigning season. De Witt knew that the bumpy first year of the war could not be repeated if he wished to send as much of a strong message to his enemy Charles as to his ally Louis. At home, the United Provinces had seemed anything but united since the war began and intrigues launched by both the Orangist Party and a number of British spies had pushed divisions within the Republic to the fore, forcing De Witt regularly to take charge. 
the latest crisis had emerged from the province of Overiesel and its attempts to sue for peace while also appointing William of Orange as its stadtholder. The wave of support that had been expected did not quite arise, and thus it wasn't quite as bad a crisis as it could have been, but DeWitt knew that the more the British and their Orangist allies intrigued, the more likely they were to eventually strike gold. If they continued to use the Orange family as their weapon of choice, he would have to find a way to take that weapon out of their hands. He would have to consider where the Republic, ran as it was by a series of wealthy regent families, would be able to go next with William of Orange, leader of the most distinguished family in that Republic's history. The clamour for William of Orange to take his place in the Netherlands remained strong, and it hadn't been helped by the year's underwhelming experiences for the Dutch military machine. Not only had a decisive battle at sea been lost, but on land the Dutch army had largely been swept aside by the efforts of the Bishop of Munster, who had invaded the Republic in the name of Charles II, and with the aim of acquiring subsidies for his campaigns. It was due to the lack of these subsidies and the military aid supplied by the French, rather than actual Dutch military prowess, that had forced the Bishop of Munster back from Dutch lands by the end of 1665, and this was a fact that stung Dutch military pride, which in years past had held back the might of Spain, and had challenged all the heavyweights of Europe. Critically for De Witt, the favourite argument of the Orangist party went that if the Dutch had in their midst a Captain General or other such commander, as it had in the days when it had been administered by the Orange family, then such military defeats would never have been allowed to occur. The idea that regents like De Witt had allowed the Republic to sink into military deficiency and neglect its defensive ring of fortresses that were so critical to the integrity of the Netherlands, was one which held credence with the Orangists, as well as an increasing number of citizens. This was the opinion of a contemporary Dutch citizen, historian and noble, by the name of Leo van Eetzema, whose letters and first-hand accounts of the period, he would only die in 1669, lend us one of the most invaluable troves of sources available. Eitzima, for his part, was born in Freeland, a province which shared both landed, military and commercial maritime interests, and he noted with withering criticism that We allow ourselves to be bitten by a mouse. We are assailed by one whom formerly we should have counted for naught and were able to compel and keep in his place by merely pulling an angry face. And all this because the army lacks a general, an illustrious head. How well and credibly would not the work of war have been performed under the Princes of Orange? Eitzema thus made no secret of his leanings, but they at least give us evidence for an interpretation of events at the time of the Second Anglo-Dutch War that identified as a direct solution Orange family leadership, while at the same time the Orangists saw, as a clear problem, the regent government that had replaced it. But the desire for Orange leadership was not the only problem DeWitt faced. Bandied about, also, was the false impression of British motives for the war, and the oft-repeated falsehood that claimed Britain waged war against the greedy regents and not the Dutch people. Were those regents to be ejected from power, and William of Orange, the nephew of Charles II, to be installed back in his place as stadtholder, the argument maintained, peace would return between the two countries. 
DeWitt, of course, knew that British ambitions revolved more around money and the pursuit of military glory than any familial concerns, though it should go without saying that Charles II had no love for the regent regime, whom he credited with robbing both his sister and then his nephew of their rightful inheritance. Particularly for a man like Charles, whose family had once been dispossessed of their lands and reign, it was an especially sensitive issue to see such a situation replicated in the Republic, whose methods and institutions he didn't quite understand, and whose practices seemed so alien to him. Charles, as much as DeWitt, appreciated the importance of scoring a big win, since despite the Battle of Lowestoft, which British forces had won in the previous June, the Dutch remained obstinate and refused to bow to increasingly stringent demands put forward by the British negotiators. 1666 was thus to be the year when British arms needed to impress upon the Dutch that they were the inferior and that they could never hope to achieve anything resembling a redemptive victory against London. For Charles, the news of his diplomatic isolation stung like any great military loss would have, since he well understood the danger of his realm's position once the Anglo-Dutch War became an Anglo-French one by early February 1666, after the French declaration of war was mirrored with one from Parliament. Charles could have lamented, and he did, that the enthusiasm for war with France had yet to translate itself into a willingness from Parliament to offer up more funds to conduct such a war. Parliament could be excused for this lack of action to some degree, owing to the disruptive impact of the plague on British society, and Charles's resulting regretful realisation that he would have no choice but to prorogue Parliament till September 1665. When the plague by then seemed to be at its height, over 7,000 people would die in mid-September from the plague in London alone, Charles made the decision to prorogue Parliament again until September 1666. This trivial decision meant that Charles was forced to meet with varied MPs across the realm, wherever it was deemed to be safe from the plague, rather than have the convenience of appealing to Parliament as a body, and this undoubtedly slowed the economic processes down. At the same time, though, Charles's Privy Council, led by the Earl of Clarendon, continued to speak on his behalf and urge their peers to put aside their suspicions for the sake of national security. War with France meant renewed threats of invasion for the first time in many decades, and preparations for home guards and the releasing of militia estimates and their resulting costs further drove home the fact that this once so fanciful war with the pushover Dutch had become something of an all-consuming monster. And the news was about to get worse. Diplomatic pressure from both French and Dutch ambassadors had paid off because on the 16th of February 1666, the Elector of Brandenburg signed a treaty which compelled him to pressure the Bishop of Munster to make peace, in exchange for promises to resolve the border disputes he held with the Dutch. This Elector of Brandenburg was Frederick William, whom history has termed the Great Elector for a number of reasons. We saw him first in his involvement within the Swedish deluges, where he attached himself to the growing coalition of powers that intervened to stop Sweden from ruling over the entirety of the Baltic. Here, he was again throwing his lot in with the concerned powers, mainly for his own benefit, but he no doubt also had the strategic interests of his electorate in mind as well. The Calvinist elector saw in the Dutch Republic a spiritual equal, 
but also acknowledged that the anticipated French attack on the Spanish Netherlands by Louis XIV in the name of Louis's wife's inheritance, an event which all of Europe seemed to fear by this point, lent itself to smart thinking in the diplomatic sphere. If the Dutch were sufficiently weakened by Britain, then less actual pressure would exist to put upon Louis XIV at a later date. Again, I feel it's worth noting that everyone was underestimating the Dutch by this point. Only in a few years would Europe appreciate what the Dutch were truly capable of in a military or resilient or tenacious sense, but for now European rulers like Frederick William and Louis XIV concerned themselves with rushing to the defence of the Dutch, who pitifully seemed incapable even of beating back someone as minor as the Bishop of Munster from invading their homelands. This no doubt created an impression that the Dutch were not as powerful on land as they used to be. Louis certainly took it to heart in his later foreign policy decisions, and Frederick William was also of the opinion that the Dutch had become too preoccupied with their naval defence to be able to extend that defence to land. One of the main reasons that Louis had gotten involved in the war against his cousin, Charles II, was because he believed a Dutch collapse was imminent, but the Dutch deficiencies were certainly exaggerated. Some of the loudest protestations against what was seen as Dutch military weakness come to us from disgruntled Orangists, such as Leo von Eitzema, as we saw, trying to uphold that the plight of the country was due to its lack of orangeness at the top levels of government. Additionally, anti-war preachers pointed to the lack of orange, but also to the unrighteousness of the war between two Protestant states, when cooperation should be cultivated and focus turned to the true enemy, France. Religious undertones also emerged, predictably enough, in Britain, where for a time the dissenter, said to represent the slippery and slidey Dutch, the Dutch penchant for ice skating was endlessly pilloried in the court's war propaganda, was replaced with the papist French spy. Religious persuasion, despite Charles's efforts, was still unquestionably tied up with questions of national loyalty in Britain, and of course treason. Thus, it is important to take the critical claims of internal weakness that came from those who sought to prove a political point with a pinch of salt. The Dutch may not have been on the verge of a revolution, and, as Jenny Uglo notes, the French intervention may have effectively cut the legs out from under the Orangists in the Netherlands, since it was unlikely that the Dutch front would collapse and beckon in the Orangists with France by its side, but a resounding victory was still urgently sought after. Samuel Pepys, the well-placed naval administrator and statesman, offers a continued account in his diary of the filtering of bad diplomatic news as the year of 1666 progressed. As early as the 18th of September 1665, Pepys was writing of the sorry state that the Navy was in, and how, owing to a want of money, he wasn't sure how it would endure another campaigning season, that no fleet was ever sent to sea, in so ill condition of provision in his words. To close a limp campaign out, Pepys noted on the 6th of November 1665 of the thoughts of one of his distinguished colleagues, who believed, It is impossible for the king to set out a fleet again the next year, and that he fears all will come to ruin, there being no money in prospect. On the 31st of December he noted that, The Dutch war goes on very ill by reason of lack of money, having none to hope for. On the 25th of January, 1666, Pepys noted that 
It is now certain that the King of France hath publicly declared war against us, and God knows how little fit we are for it. That Pepys's diary is largely silent of any major naval news up to June 1666 reflects that fact that the campaigning season of that year began similarly to the previous one. No military moves of consequence were made at sea or on land up to that point, but diplomatic efforts remained consistent on both sides. This reflected the fact that Charles believed his cards were better than they were after his previous campaigns, and that an advantageous diplomatic victory in the form of a rewarding peace would have been far cheaper than another campaigning season. But it also underlined the fact that war was expensive. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And that it was also hard to coordinate such large naval battles in the treacherous waters of the Channel. Charles's agents in the Netherlands remained determined to pressure the Dutch to make peace, and remained convinced for their part that they held the better cards. The many Dutch conspirators within the Orangist party who helped the British in their efforts may have fostered a belief that more support for the displaced William of Orange existed in the Netherlands than it actually did, and this provides an interesting dimension to the Anglo-Dutch War. It was largely Holland and Zealand, two provinces most concerned with naval trade, that supported the regent regime and opposed any Orangist resurgence, but British agents were working hard to change this status quo. On the 2nd of February 1666, a Dutch Orangist allied to Britain's pressure campaign delivered the following revealing memo to the Dutch States General. If His Majesty can be certain that the States will conclude an alliance with him against France, which is the only true way for them to secure their safety and to guard themselves against too close a vicinity of France, and if moreover His Majesty can be convinced that the peace will be followed by the restoration of the Prince of Orange, then His Majesty is prepared to leave the manner and conduct of that affair to their judgment entirely, and in that case you may tell them that, according to your belief, 
they would be able to obtain some reduction of the sum suggested by His Majesty, the indemnity put at 200,000 sterling, or at least a longer term for the payment. A regime change, a smaller but still large war indemnity, and a guarantee of an alliance, these were the prices demanded by London in early spring 1666. DeWitt had no intention of fulfilling any of these requests, though he certainly appreciated the strategic sense of an Anglo-Dutch alliance, as did many of his peers when they looked at the map of Europe. DeWitt responded to such overtures by announcing plans for the Prince of Orange's future. The teenager would be made cavalry general and a child of state, but DeWitt also sought to extend a branch to France as well, by claiming that the Dutch did need a captain general after all. Who did DeWitt believe would be best suited for the role? No, not William of Orange, who had only recently returned to Rotterdam amidst great fanfare, but Field Marshal Turenne of France. Henry de la Tour d'Auvergne, Vicomte de Turenne, was one of France's most experienced generals of the last few decades, achieving a mixture of successes and failure during the Thirty Years' War. He put the nail in the coffin of the Franco-Spanish War with the victory at the Battle of the Dunes in 1658. De Witt hoped to bargain with Louis to have Turenne lead Franco-Dutch land forces and fill the void left by a lack of Orange Captain General. This would fill the void of Captain General and enable the Dutch land effort to get back on track, appeasing the Orangists in the landed provinces, De Witt hoped, in the process. What was even better than Turenne's military CV or his renowned Calvinism? Well, he happened to be a grandson of William the Silent, essentially the founder of the distinguished Orange family and the most famous martyr the Netherlands had ever seen. De Witt hoped this idea would unite the agitating Dutch elements, as well as endear France even closer to him, but immediately this idea was met with opposition. Over the course of February 1666, De Witt had gradually come to understand that the scheme would have been impossible. The Orange Party, who De Witt was trying to please with the plan, did not trust the French, since they believed that William would be made a pawn in Franco-Dutch designs, rather than be in control of his own destiny, while Louis failed to appreciate De Witt's position, and was hostile to the idea of seeing his distinguished commander Turenne spirited away to help his ally. De Witt then tried to sweeten the deal, and made revealing offers which demonstrated, if not his desperation, then certainly his willingness to use duplicity to get what he wanted. Appealing to Louis' ambitions, de Witt argued that if the French king called for William's appointment to the States of Holland, then that young prince would be in his debt. Furthermore, de Witt perceptively reasoned that since an inconclusive 1663 treaty regarding the Spanish Netherlands, Louis had been itching for an opportunity to claim the region as his own. How convenient it would be, De Witt seemed to hint, if France had the Dutch on his side in the event that Louis felt compelled to move against that province. As Peter Gale notes in his analysis of the Houses of Orange and Stuart, One cannot suppress the uneasy feeling that De Witt, in resisting the English party, was leaning over backwards to appease the French. It wasn't exactly honest, but then again, De Witt had a responsibility to tackle the biggest threat at that point in time. He had no illusions about Louis' ambitions, and knew France would be a problem in the future, but for the moment the Dutch statesman believed that London posed the biggest threat to Dutch security and integrity 
and any price was worth paying to defend it. Though Turenne was only meant to be given a temporary position, until the Bishop of Munster was defeated once and for all, Louis still disagreed with the plan. De Witt had hoped that Louis could be softened by a Dutch pledge to help France and the Spanish Netherlands in the future, but Louis seems to have correctly suspected that this pledge came less from a genuine desire to help him upset the European apple cart than from a strategic belief on De Witt's part. By promising to give Louis help in Flanders in the future, De Witt believed he could prevent Louis planning any grand strategic initiatives now which would really set the odds against the balance of power. Incredibly, Johann de Witt seems to have feared that Louis would launch an invasion of Britain at some point, a prospect which, considering he was at war with that country, we would think he'd have relished. Yet the spectacle of British shores coming under attack by French soldiers did not appeal to de Witt. His aim in the present war with Britain was to assert Dutch naval predominance, sending a clear message to the world, and to conquer the elements within the Republic which would see his regime topple. We could perhaps best define his desires as national survival and political victory, considering how trying the last war had been for Dutch fortunes. This time he wanted to put to use the reforms and changes he had effected in Dutch naval strategy and production, and impress upon Britain the fact that the Netherlands was not a pushover, and that its dominance in world trade and commerce was here to stay. A French takeover of the British Isles would not achieve such an aim, because above all De Witt didn't trust Louis, just like he didn't trust Charles, and he didn't want to be alone in Europe against him. Understanding that the alliance with France would not last forever, De Witt offered up his support for a French invasion of the Spanish Netherlands, not because he genuinely wished to see the region come under the influence of Paris, but because he believed that by doing so, Louis would be reminded of his own personal end goal of the Spanish Netherlands, and therefore be less ambitious in the current war against his cousin in Britain. While it may seem an incredible way of conducting one's policy, that, in a roundabout way, De Witt was trying to protect his current enemy from his ally, the French, such is the conclusion which many historians have arrived at when analysing De Witt's character and aims. He was living in the now, but he was also determined to limit any game-changing events that may occur in the present war since he fully expected that an even greater war was somewhere on the horizon. Reflecting the later relationship he would enjoy with William of Orange, Louis XIV also objected to DeWitt's suggestion that he call for the prince to be reinstated. I won't dream of lending myself to so pitiful a part, Louis remarked on the idea. He would be the first to laugh about it with the English. In a sense, he was right. William of Orange had been shaped by his upbringing, and had his own ideas about his birthright. He did not need the King of France to call for his appointment to feel justified, nor would he feel indebted to Louis for calling for it in the first place. When the States of Holland had replied in the negative to his request for appointment in January 1666, on the grounds that circumstances were too critical and too dangerous for someone of his age to be appointed, William of Orange had replied cuttingly that I shall render the state at least as much service as the Grand Pensionary did last summer. William of Orange would prove that he possessed a will of his own where his being used as a pawn in European relations was concerned. He had spoken against the Turenne plan put forward by De Witt in the past, arguing that France could not be trusted 
and that such limited appointments that DeWitt was willing to concede, if you remember the vague appointment of Cavalry General, was not befitting of his birthright. This all from a 15-year-old, though the Orangists liked to talk of and treat the prince as though he were much older, while Charles and Louis treated him as though he was still a baby. William of Orange may have been forced to grow up fast, but he was not forced to swallow lies from either side. He rejected the ambitions of one British agent as too ambitious, just as assuredly as he had rejected DeWitt's plan. This British agent, Sir William Temple, who was the British resident at Brussels, put forward the following proposal to appear in early March 1666, musing that William of Orange should pretend some short journey of pleasure in his yacht with such few persons as are his own and being out at sea should make for Zealand and land either at Turvor or Vlissingen, which are both his own, but that being there he shall declare his escape to have been made upon the apprehensions of danger to his person at the Hague and upon a desire of giving a sudden and happy ends to the miseries of his country by mediating a peace with England if the States General saw fit. The rest may be favoured by His Majesty's fleet from sea and by levies, which the Bishop of Munster is continually making here, as well as many others whom His Majesty's name would soon send out of those countries if we desired it. I cannot imagine, but this must give an immediate shake to Holland, engage the Duke of Brandenburg, as well as other friends of the Orange family, and preserve His Majesty's honour in condescending to a more reasonable peace in other points, if it be necessary. As we have by now seen repeatedly, such plans were the brainchild of those British statesmen who believed that they possessed greater advantages in the war than the Dutch, and that they could thus pressure the Dutch to peace out, separate from France, and thereby avoid a war with a Franco-Dutch coalition which they knew they could not afford. Yet these schemes from Temple and his allies were coming apart by March 1666, because the great elector was by that stage in a strong enough position to pressure the Bishop of Munster to make peace. From late March 1666, the Netherlands would no longer be threatened by a land invasion, and thus a critical pillar of the British war strategy had been toppled. In late May, to combat what was feared to be a Franco-Dutch effort to combine their fleets for an attack close to home, Charles approved a move by the Joint Admirals of the Royal Navy, General Monk and Prince Rupert of the Rhine. The Joint Command of the fleet had its ups and downs, but both men were generally viewed as a good complement to one another, with Rupert the more daring and Monk the more cautious and experienced in naval affairs. To prevent the French and Dutch fleets combining, Monk had argued that Rupert should stay at the Straits of Dover with 20 ships to protect against a French build-up of ships at Dunkirk. While there, Monk would venture out with his force of 56 ships to meet the Dutch off North Foreland, the part of England that juts out on its southeast coast, essentially to the east of the mouth of the Thames. The Dutch had been long gathering there, and through a combination of superior seamanship and weaponry, a new type of inflammable ammunition had recently been developed, Monk believed that he would have the upper hand against the numerically superior Dutch force of 84 ships. Yet, two critical mistakes had already been made by the time the British force went its separate ways in late May 1666. For starters, the French were nowhere near the Channel, and remained mostly collected in the Mediterranean. Thus, there was no need to divide the Royal Navy at all. Second, the underestimation of Dutch professionalism, 
the expectation that the crews of its vessels would be filled with inexperienced seamen, and the ingrained belief in the prowess of their own tactics and ability, led Monk, Rupert and their peers to dramatically overestimate the hand that they had. These two critical points intertwined, and proved the difference, as the Dutch finally got the victory they so badly needed at sea. Over the space of four days, Monk and Admiral Michel de Rutier battled one another. On the first day of fighting, Dutch fire killed the British vice-admiral and destroyed his ship. After much manoeuvring the second day, Monk panicked when he saw what appeared to be a fourth flotilla of Dutch ships join the battle. This was in fact an old remnant of the fleet, which had returned to the party after having pursued a number of English ships the day before. It was enough to spook Monk, and he ordered a retreat when he saw their arrival. And on the third day, the retreat continued, with the Dutch continuing to have the wind advantage, as well as positioning themselves in better range for their guns, where they were able to pour devastating fire on the British. By the third day, Monk was quite eager for Prince Rupert to rejoin him with his 20 ships, as he had been given orders to, since the battle was more intense here than expected, and no French ships had been seen by Prince Rupert at all. Finally, on the evening of the third day, Prince Rupert would make his return, though he would later be criticised by armchair generals since he had been ordered to return on the first day of the battle and had only gotten there like two days later. Rupert had incidentally sailed too far west in search of the imaginary French fleet, but by the end of the third day more bad news seemed to greet Monk despite Rupert's arrival. Against the advice of others, some British vessels had attempted to traverse treacherous shoals and had gotten stuck. When the Dutch sent fire ships in, the men began to panic and were persuaded to surrender. The captured ships were burned and the crews were imprisoned. This incident wouldn't have been so bad, except that one ship in particular was the HMS Prince Royal, and the captured crew included the Vice Admiral, George Askew, the highest-ranking British naval serviceman to ever be captured by the enemy. Under express orders to burn any ships that he captured, Rear Admiral Trump did as he was told, and the Prince Royal sank beneath the waves. The fourth day of the ongoing naval battle gave the British the chance to recoup their losses, as they had been reinforced and somewhat replenished by Rupert's arrival. The British now possessed 65 to the Dutch 68 ships, and de Rutger informed his peers that this day would be the most decisive of all. He was correct. With the wind behind them, de Rutger was able to bring about a highly aggressive attack, which threw the British defence off balance. The British naval line was broken in three places, as the Dutch closed ranks and bore down upon them with heavy firepower, in scenes reminiscent of the Dutch losses from the previous war. British ships were cornered and separated, and when those that tried to flee were set alight, forcing their allies away in other directions, the Dutch caught them too. It was a devastating display of Dutch naval prowess, and by the end of the fourth day the outcome was clear. The Dutch had gotten the better of their rival at last. The tally was four small Dutch ships lost, 17 British warships sunk and six captured. De Rutger was later criticised for failing to continue the pursuit that evening, but he took the rolling fog which followed the British as proof that the battle had come to an end, and appreciated both the dangers of British shoals and the damage done to his own forces. Over the course of the four days, 
the guns could be heard from London, though the battle was of course miles offshore. So hard was news to come by that Pepys' diary is filled with erroneous reports of huge victories over the course of the four days battle from the 1st to the 4th of June 1666, but eventually, on the 7th of June, the penny dropped. For many months afterwards, it would be held as an inconclusive battle, but the results told a different story. Pepys, for one, was adamant that the victory had been great, right up to the point that his superior informed him of the losses. This news do much trouble me, and the thoughts of the ill consequences of it, and the pride and presumptions that brought us to it, he remarked despondently, adding, As to news, I do find great reason to think that we are beaten in every aspect, and that we are the losers. Losers, indeed, for over much of June and July, the Dutch, now as masters of the sea for perhaps the first time in the living memory of any British citizen, were able to implement a blockade of the River Thames and control any traffic going in or out of the British Isles. Revenge, as this act was seen for the past war, when humiliating Dutch defeats were followed by ruinous British blockades. After half a year of peace overtures, which eventually blew up in the four days battle then, the British had been left with much food for thought. It remained to be seen if they could stomach the defeat and regroup for the next campaign, or if the war had indeed turned a corner for the embattled Dutch. As 1666 progressed, both sides once again refitted and prepared for the next round, complete with all the expense, devastation and risk that such manoeuvres suggested. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.